We're going to be continuing our sermon series through 1 Corinthians, and we are at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 26 through 40, page 960 in the ESV Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 26. And this is going to conclude Paul's instructions on worship and the ordering uh, of worship. Go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit as we open up your word this morning, as it's read, as it's heard. Father, we want to understand this passage. We need an understanding of what this originally meant as the Apostle Paul wrote it to these believers in Corinth. And then we also want to apply it today. We want to be able to to take what you've written and put it into practice. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Australia, they they have something called a formal, a school formal. It's similar to our prom that we have here in, in America, but it's a little different. And in order for this formal to to happen, certain things are expected and, and really must occur. The, the dress is is top end. The the girls wear full length dresses and, and the boys wear black tie. No exceptions. Uh, this is part of what formal means. No jeans, no alternative uh, dress ways of dressing up or, or going to prom. Flowers are expected for both the boy and the girl somewhere to prom. They, they need to go out to eat to a nice restaurant, as in silverware and cloth napkins and wait staff that are, that are actually dressed up and, and wearing, wearing lots of white and, and uh, looking good. Um, the dance or this, this formal cannot be held in the gymnasium that's been decorated for the night. It needs to be at a classy venue somewhere off campus, formal. And of course, the music also needs to be top tier. Not just a radio or not not even a DJ playing popular hits or or things that they can uh, kind of rock out to, but classy music, classical. uh, In fact, live music is even better than, than a DJ. It's not just a dance, it's formal. And in order for formal to happen, these things need to be in place. It needs to be a certain order and and certain components need to be there. Now, to depart from those things, if you lose too many of those elements, well, then it's not formal anymore. Then, at best, it's just a school dance. So it is with Christian worship. There is a certain order that God expects his people to to have. There is a certain way of doing things. There are uh, instructions, commands from the Lord on how he wants to be worshipped. And in this passage, Paul covers that. He's covering the regulation of worship and specifically the word-based spiritual gifts in New Testament worship. And we're going to look at these. We're going to see uh, exactly what the Lord commands. Because when the church gathers... If, if these things are missing, well, it's not really worship anymore. At least it's not God-commanded worship. 
Worship done God's way uh, is worship done decently and in order. So we're going to find out exactly what Paul has to say to the church and, and what he still has to say to the church today. So here's our passage, 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This, this is going to be the, the wrap-up, the conclusion of everything Paul's been writing about, essentially for the last three chapters on assembled worship and orderly worship. And he begins by saying, what then, brothers? In other words, uh, he's saying, well, what does this all mean? Or, or, or what does this look like? And now he's going to explain it. When you come together, each one has. Now this doesn't mean that each individual person must always contribute and participate in the worship service. He's saying when you come together as the assembled church, there's going to be a variety of, of gifts exercised in that worship service. And then he lists a few examples. A hymn, a lesson, a revelation, etc. These are all things he's talked about already. This is a review. These are not, this is not a new list. It's not, also not an exhaustive list. This isn't a list of every single thing that, that ever takes place in a worship service. It's an example. And then he says, let all things be done for building up. Paul is telling them that the worship service is not me time. This, this is not a place where the emphasis is on the individual worship experience. Or to put it another way, it's not me time, it's we time. It's for the building up of the entire body. He hits that pretty strongly in this chapter, repeatedly. Verses 27 and 28, he's going to begin by talking about regulating languages. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or three, at most three, and each in turn and let someone interpret. I would argue that should be let someone translate. So, why give these instructions at all? Well, it seems as if from this verse, and also if you look back at verse 23 when he gave the example of uh, everybody speaking all at once in a bunch of different languages and how that would be, that would be a negative witness and confusing. 
Well, it, it seems as if they were doing that. It seems as if people were blurting out whatever they wanted to and, and speaking over one another and, and kind of trying to one-up one another and, and it was confusing. And in response, here are his instructions. Number one, we're going to only have two non-Greek speakers, three of the most, during the service. One at a time. Take turns. And you must have someone translate what is said into Greek. The, the whole point, uh, and if you remember, if you were here last week, the whole point of the first part of chapter 14 was saying, look, you need to understand each other when you come together for worship. If, if you don't understand what is being spoken, how are you going to be built up? How is that going to instruct you at all? How is that going to be worshipful at all if you don't even understand the words that are coming out of someone's mouth? And then the last instruction, but if there is no one to interpret or translate, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and God. In other words, if no one can translate this foreign language, remember Corinth was a seaport city, they had temporary uh, residents from all over the world, this church was reflective of the community around it, lots of different languages, and he said if no one can translate the foreign language into Greek, then the foreign language speaker shouldn't speak at all. Because you need to understand each other. And incidentally, here is another uh, reason, another strong reason why uh, tongues should be translated as languages. How is it possible if tongues are in fact this uh, spiritual language of praise that no one understands, not even the speaker, if that's true, how is it possible that Paul can give these instructions saying if there's no one to translate? How would they know if there's anyone to translate unless it's a known language? Uh, if it is a language, then somebody can say, yeah, I, I not only can I speak this language, but I'm, I'm pretty confident I can tell you the translation into Greek. Or, or somebody can, in, the, in the worship service can say, oh yeah, I know, I know Bob, I know his language, I can tell you, go ahead, Bob. But if there's nobody like that, then he says, keep silent. Well, how would they know? If it's a private prayer language, the answer is they wouldn't. They wouldn't know. It's impossible to follow the Apostle Paul's instructions unless it's an actual known language. So the worship service is not a time for everyone to start speaking as prompted by the Holy Spirit. There are limits to the speakers, and they're each to take turns. It must follow this certain order. And the worship service is going to be conducted primarily in the dominant language. There's going to be a couple people that are allowed to speak in the non-Greek language, but not everybody. Most of the service is going to be in a language that everybody understands. Then we move in verse 29 to regulating prophecy. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. We've covered this a couple of times over the last few weeks. I don't think we need to go into a full-blown explanation of what prophets were. Prophets were messengers of God. They were speaking the words of God to the church and they, along with the apostles, were given the responsibility to lay down this foundational teaching and doctrine for the first century church. Revelatory word from God. Since that first century time, after the New Testament canon has been recorded for us, after they had that foundation, then those offices are no longer needed. In other words, we do not have any apostles or prophets today. They ceased with the apostolic age. So here Paul's writing the church, telling them how to regulate the prophetic ministry of these prophets. He says, after a prophet speaks, let the others weigh what is said. 
And there are two questions about that phrase. First, who are the others? And what does way mean? So first, who are the, who are the others? The context gives us two options. They can be the other prophets, or they can be the other people in the worship service. And I think the answer is both. I think the answer is both. Uh, later in verse 37, Paul invites the prophets and those who are spiritual, which would include everybody, to hear and acknowledge that the things he is writing are from the Lord. And then we also have verses like 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, where the whole church is told to test everything. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 22 says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So then the whole church is called to, to weigh what is said. The others is everybody, but it would specifically include those that have the gift of spiritual discernment, those who are able to, to have uh, the, the, the gift of discerning the spirits, as mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12.10. So the other question is then, is there to weigh what is said? What does weigh mean? Uh, the word translated as weigh means to distinguish, to discern, to judge. And this, this gift of spiritual discernment has already been mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12.10. It says, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. And that's that to, to judge uh, and to discern is in the sense of distinguishing between good and evil. And that's how it's used elsewhere in Scripture. One of the things that we, we always have to bring to a text is the principle that scriptures, the scriptures interpret themselves. If we want to know what a passage means or if we want to know what a word means, we need to first look to how it's used elsewhere in scripture. We, we need to first look at how the rest of the Bible informs us and, and tells us how we need to understand that. I mean, uh, word studies and, and scholarship and, and original context and historical context and, and what might have happened in the first century Gnostics and all, all that scholarly stuff, that, that's good, that's helpful at times. But first and foremost, we need to go back to the Bible. How has God told us to interpret these things? So when we do that, when we look at the rest of the, the New Testament to see how this word uh, discerning, or in this case, weighing. It's translated as weigh, what is said, but it means judging and distinguishing. We look at Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And then also in 1 Thessalonians, we mentioned this a moment ago, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from what, what is evil. So, We've got this discernment, distinguishing between spirits when we're talking about prophecy, and it's between good and evil. It's between truth and lie. So Paul is not telling them, when he says, weigh what is said, he's not saying, I want you, church, to look at this true prophet of God and distinguish whether or not these words that he's laying down under the revelation of God are truth or error. That's not it. He's saying, I want you to discern whether that prophet is a true prophet or a false prophet. If he's a true prophet, yes, everything he's going to say is going to be from the Lord. If he's a false prophet, then none of, nothing he's going to be saying is from the Lord. So when the prophet speaks, distinguish or discern or judge or weigh whether or not the person speaking is a genuine 
prophet or not. In other words, distinguish and discern the spirit that is behind the prophet to see whether or not the one speaking is from God or from Satan. Because everyone claiming to speak in the name of the Lord is is either from one or the other. He's either speaking by the Spirit of God or he's speaking by the Spirit of Satan. Uh, 1 John 4, 1 shows us this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do you see how John links those two there? He said, look, if you, if you want to distinguish between a true false a true prophet or a false prophet, you need to distinguish between the spirits that are behind those prophets, that are, that are animating what they're saying, that are motivating them to, to say what they are saying. And if you think about it, um, the first century church, before, remember, they did not have the New Testament. These were all believers in Corinth, don't have all this part that we're flipping through in the back of our Bible. They didn't have that. What an opportune time for the enemy to infiltrate the church and send in false prophets. They were dependent upon these prophets to to give them the words of God to help clarify and codify that that New Testament doctrine. What an opportunity. Satan says, yeah, I'll I'll throw some prophets at you and I'll, I'll send them to all these churches. And they start speaking and what an opportunity for false doctrine. It, it seems as if uh, this was standard operating procedure in the early church was to discern between true prophets and false prophets. And that's what Paul means when he says, way what is spoken. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, one at a time. Even if you are speaking words from God, Even if God has given you a word to give to the church, one at a time. Wait your turn. We're not going to be speaking over each other in church. We're going to do things decently and in order. Why? Verse 31 tells us, you can all prophesy prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. There it is again. So that the church is built up. It's not me time, it's we time. And we all are going to be built up. We're not going to have somebody go off and and say, well, I'm more important than that speaker, so I'm going to start speaking a little bit louder over here and hopefully get people to listen to me. No, no. Nothing like that. That's not going to benefit the body. Verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. Paul's saying, yeah, you can control yourself. Yeah, I, I know you've got this, this word and it's just you, you just can't wait to get it out, but you can wait. You're, you're in control of yourself. We're not like those false religions where uh, the, those pagans that claim to be overtaken by a spirit and they lose motor control and they just have to say as the, as the spirit is speaking through them. He's like, no, no, you can, you can control yourself. Every instance in the Bible where there's a prophet from God, they're still under control. They're, they're, still, they're still controlling when and, 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 and how they speak. They're speaking the words of God, but they're not falling into a trance. Um, Paul's telling them, you, you can wait. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is not chaotic. God is not disordered. God is not frenzied. He's a God of peace and order. And then the next section, regulating preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching. 
verses 33 through 35. Now it begins, let's not just gloss over this. It be, he begins by saying, as in all the churches of the saints. Why would he say that? Because what he has been saying thus far has been context specific. This is, after all, an occasional letter. Letter. It was written to these raw believers in Corinth, and they were the ones that were having problems with these word-based gifts. They were the ones that, that were surrounded by seaports and had this multilingual city that they were a part of. They were the ones dealing with these language issues. And so that's why those were specific instructions. But now he shifts, and he says, as in all the churches to the saints. In other words, I'm going to bring you one more teaching, piece of teaching on regulating word-based gifts in worship. But this isn't specific to you. This, this applies to everybody. This, this is the same message I bring to every church I visit. So that's why he prefaces this next part with that phrase. And I don't want us to miss that. It's important to understanding what he's saying. And then we have the women keep silent passage. Here it is. The women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says if there is anything they desire to learn but the master husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now there have been some elaborate arguments and explanations given to make this statement stronger than it really is and that it should be. And there have been some elaborate arguments to make it seem weaker than it really is. We want to avoid both of those extremes. And so I'm going to talk about those, the stronger and the weaker, so that you understand what those are and so that you might be able to help someone else understand them when coming to this passage. Because this is a hot topic passage. Let's, let's be upfront about it. So first, stronger. Some have argued that this is Paul's real teaching on, on how he feels about women speaking in church. And even though it seemed like he permitted women to pray and prophesy back in 1 Corinthians 11, um, uh, he was just using that as a hypothetical example, or, or, or he didn't really mean it. But here, mm, here we have his clear, unadulterated teaching, his true feelings and true apostolic instructions and what he really means is that women are not to speak at all. This is universal. This is absolute. As soon as they cross the threshold of the, of the, the worship service, they're not to open their mouth. So that would be an example of making this verse stronger than what it really means. But that just doesn't work. Um, if we look back at 1 Corinthians 11.5, he says, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, we don't have time to go back and talk through the whole head covering explanation, but the point I want to make is that he is talking about women praying and prophesying in the public worship service. So praying could have been done along with the rest of the church or silently to herself, but prophesying, that's bringing a word of God to the church. It's kind of hard to see how that's to yourself. So the, the plain reading of that passage in, in 1 Corinthians 11 is that Paul is okay with women prophesying in worship as long as it's done in accordance with the word of God and was respectful and obedient to God's good created order and the distinctions between male and female. It is a terrible argument to say that Paul really didn't mean what he said in 1 Corinthians 11, but he really means what he says in 1 Corinthians 14. Or that um, uh, that, that we can just kind of look past and push down to the side, but here we need to push it up and really elevate it. 
Um, or, or that Paul was just kidding in 1 Corinthians 11, or that, that he wasn't being 100% truthful. Those are terrible arguments. We've got to let the scriptures interpret themselves. The Bible does not contradict itself. So it is impossible to, to make this verse mean that women can't talk at all during a worship service. And by the way, this is not how the church has practiced it throughout church history, and it does, it's not how the church practices it today. So it's not an absolute prohibition on speaking and being silent at, at all times. That's the stronger error. Now let's look at the weaker one. Some, as you can imagine, would just like to get rid of this altogether. They, they come to this passage, and, and some of the arguments, some of the very elementary arguments are, this isn't valid. Paul, Paul never really wrote that. Uh, we, we can just throw that whole thing. It's not authentic. Well, it's in every single attested manuscript, so that's not going to work. Paul did write it. It's, it's very well documented. Uh, still others say, yeah, no, um, uh, it, it was valid for back then, but, but, but it no longer applies today because, you see, back then, you have to understand what was going on. Um, back then, women couldn't talk to anybody in public other than other women, and if they did, then it was seen as a sign of promiscuity. And uh, so Paul wants them to look good in that context, and he doesn't want the women in church to appear like they were being immodest. So, so that's why he gives this command. But um, uh, since, since women speaking in public to people other than women no longer gives the impression of promiscuity, it no longer applies. And, and we, don't, we can just throw this verse out. Well, once again, that's, that's not really going to work. Um, Paul does not appeal to his present-day cultural norms or modesty. Uh, he grounds his commands on things like should be in submission, and as the law also says, capital L, which means scripture, he's appealing to scripture, and it is shameful for a woman to speak. So he's talking about submission, scripture, and shameful. We, we can't wave the it no longer applies wand and just throw this verse out when he appeals to things like that. So what is he talking about? What do these verses mean? The first thing we need to understand is the context. What is Paul talking about? This passage is about regulating word-based gifts in a worship service. That's what the languages have to do with, that's what the prophecy has to do with, and that's what this has to do with. He's still on the same topic. He hasn't changed. In fact, we've got at the end a concluding verse talking about all things and decently in order. He's still talking about worship. So that's the context. He's talking about regulating word-based gifts in worship. And then also, since he writes that women may prophesy in worship, it, it seems like also they were giving thanks and singing. So it, it's not a completely silent command. Whatever command this is, whatever kind of speech or speaking these women are doing that he's prohibiting, it's something that has to be shameful. So the question is, what kind of speaking or speech would be shameful for a woman to do in a public worship service? And it's really not that hard. Paul is consistent, the Bible is consistent, and there's only one type of area or one, one kind of speaking that Paul has prohibited women from engaging in, and that's preaching and teaching. And somebody said, well, it doesn't say preaching and teaching, it says speak. I understand that. Um, it doesn't have to he say preaching. He's saying uh, speaking that is shameful. And when we, when we see this, and we even do this today, we, when the, in the context of a worship service, 
When we say, oh yeah, are you going Sunday? Sure, yeah. Yeah, who's speaking? We don't mean who's opening their mouth inside the building. We, we mean who's preaching. The New Testament does this. When it talks about Jesus' ministry, it says Jesus was speaking to the crowds or speaking to the people. He was asked, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus was teaching the crowds. He was teaching the people. And he was teaching them in parables. So, so not only do we do it, but the Bible speaks of speaking in terms of teaching depending on the context. And if that wasn't enough, take a look at these two passages side by side. Here's our passage, 34 and 35. And here's the same prohibition in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Uh, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And then here's the First Timothy passage. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Look at the parallels here. Uh, keep silent. Remain quiet. Remain quiet. Not permitted. Do not permit. In submission, all submissiveness. Learn, learn. And then the grounds are the same. For it is shameful in our passage, and then for Adam was formed first. Both of those are appealing to uh, God's good created order and the distinctions between men and women. In both places, he gives the exact same instructions. Both places, the grounds for the commands are in created order and for male and female. It's really not that hard. And also, by the way, for those in, in the church that want to make this into um, another type of prohibition for those that say no it doesn't mean the same thing as First Timothy it doesn't mean teaching and preaching I would ask how many prohibitions do you think the New Testament lays on women you, you want to put another restriction on top of the one in First Timothy I hope not no it's the same thing it's talking about preaching and teaching and the reason that Paul consistently gives this command is an appeal to God's good created order for Adam is for first then Eve in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman from man. And here he simply says shameful. When he uses that word shameful and disgraceful, he uses that frequently in chapter 11 to talk about the shamefulness of, of men presenting themselves as women or women presenting themselves as men, of, of either one trying to cross that, that gender distinction line. Paul says, no, no, that would be disgraceful. That would be shameful. Hair length, you remember that? Chapter 11. No, we're not going to go down that route and try to remove what God has put in place. Men and women are created completely equal in value and in personhood, but they are also created differently. And those differences are to be upheld and celebrated. The authoritative preaching and teaching over the assembled church, God has relegated to men because of their headship role. Now, it's important to point out that Paul does not prohibit women from all teaching. Uh, look at Titus 2, 3 through 5. It says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So women are commanded to teach other women. And, that's, and one, of, one of the things they're supposed to teach are what? Be submissive to their own husbands. Why? Because if uh, a, a woman stands up and says, no, I, you know what? I'm going to be the head of the household, not you. That would be 
subverting God's good created order. That would be taking something that God has put in place and rejecting it. Now these commands in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 14, 1 Timothy 2, they're not isolated. We could go to 1 Peter 3. Uh, we could go to Colossians 3.18. Here's Colossians 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. If we want to see what God intends for the family, we need look no further than that verse. What does God want for us? There it is. That's, that's the will of God. So we don't want to make these verses stronger than they are by teaching an absolute prohibition on, on any opening mouths in worship service. But we also don't want to toss them out and say, well, they no longer apply, we can just move on. They don't, they don't apply to us at all. Paul's instructing the believers on an orderly worship and a worship, that is, worship service that is orderly is one that adheres to God's good created order. It upholds and recognizes headship and authority and a joyful living out of, to the fullest the way God has made us. Verse 36 is Paul's final word on the topic. He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? The you would be anyone standing in opposition to Paul's teaching. And he's reminding them that he brought them the word of God, not the other way around. He's saying, I, I, I brought this to you. And he's also reminding them, you're not the final authority on these things. And Paul's saying, I, as an apostle authorized by God, am. I, I'm bringing this teaching. It's from Jesus Christ. And then to strengthen this, he doubles down. Verse 37 and 38. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So he's commanding the believers in Corinth to recognize and acknowledge that what he is bringing them is directly from God. He's saying, if you don't recognize this, then you're not going to be recognized. And the implication is, you're not going to be recognized by Christ. That's how strong this language is. He's saying, if you don't accept the word of Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ doesn't accept you. That's strong language. And then verses 39 and 40 are some summary verses. Prophecy is good. Desire it. Do not completely forbid people from contributing in their own native language as long as you follow the regulations I gave you. Do not exclude. Paul's saying, look, we don't want to box somebody out of the worship service just because they don't speak Greek. However, it's to be done in an orderly manner. And it, and it needs to be translated. And it needs to be limited. All things must be done decently and in order. What has he told them? understand each other, take turns, one at a time, no sudden outbursts, recognize all the commands in Scripture, and maintain male and female distinctions that God has put in place, decently and in order. To summarize this passage, we would say Paul provides instructions on how to exercise the word-based gifts and how to regulate the spoken elements of a worship service. He gives specific instructions regarding non-Greek language speaking and translation, prophesying and preaching and teaching, so that everything is done decently and in order. He reminds them that a worship service is not about a person's individual experience, but rather for the building up of the whole body. He concludes the whole section on worship and spiritual gifts with strong words of apostolic authority. That's our passage.
So we have to ask, how important is this? How important is this for us today? Well, if you went to Australia and you went to the school formal that they hold at the end of the year, and you saw somebody show up in jeans, and, and you saw somebody show up and they didn't have any flowers, and, and then you learned that, that one person took their date through, through a drive-through fast food uh, window to get their meal, and, and they got to the, the dance and it was in the gym and, and they had thrown up a few streamers and, and then somebody was turned on the radio and they were just kind of dancing to that. That's not formal. I mean, you, you could call it a school dance um, and, and, and you could have people there that were having a good time, but that's, that's not formal because it's not done with those elements in, the, in, those, in that certain order. In the same way, the worship service, if we had a worship service and there was no limit on how many people spoke at once, if there were people all speaking in all different languages and there was no translating going on so that nobody understood what was being said, if the Word of God is read but then somebody else stands up and starts to talk over them and starts reading somewhere else from the Word of God or the leadership doesn't put any qualifications or limits on, on who's preaching and teaching, then that's no longer worship God's way. I mean, you could still say people are assembling and getting together, and they might even be having a good time, but that's, that's not worship. That's not biblical worship, decently and in order. All faithful churches, we have an order of service that, that we work our way through, it's there for a reason. We, we have an orderly uh, way to, to move through things one at a time so that not anybody can just stand up. We don't have open mic time where, where we just say, anybody go for it. Um, faithful churches do that. And the reason they do that is because of these instructions. They want to be faithful to our Lord, and Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be uh, a church that worships the way God wants us to worship. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. There's a couple very brief applications that we can still pull away from what Paul wrote. Number one, corporate or excuse me, corporate worship takes priority over individual worship. Corporate worship takes priority over individual worship during the worship service. There is to be no untranslated, non-dominant language singing or speaking in the worship. Now, once in a while. Uh, even today, you'll see some churches that want to bring a different language into the church uh, during the worship service. And, and some of these motives might be pure. Maybe they say, well, we just want the church to, to experience what our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world are experiencing. So we just want to give you a taste of that. But other times it seems like it's more forced as if someone's saying, your, your, your horizons aren't broad enough. You need a, you need a more deep cultural experience. We're going to make you uh, speak in a language that's, that's not yours. But for whatever the reasons, it's not helpful because it doesn't build up the church. Usually the congregation is led by an enthusiastic uh, leader that says, okay, I'm going to put the words up and don't worry about pronouncing them correctly. Just uh, sing along with me. Here we go. And the congregation kind of mouths up something that's up there, but they don't understand what's, what's going on. Is that helpful? I would argue no. In fact, it's, 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 uh, it's going against Scripture. 
One of Paul's major points in this passage is that the worship service could be, should be conducted in a language that everyone understands. Why would we bring an un, a non-understandable language into the worship service when Paul says, don't bring anything into the worship service that you can't understand? That doesn't make sense at all. So the dominant language is to be used. The dominant language here is English, so our service is going to be in English. If we were a believer over in China, the worship service had better be in Chinese. If we were in Mexico City, then the worship service better be in Spanish. But we're not going to have a worship service here that's in a language that no one understands. Now, of course, it's okay to have different language services. There are churches throughout the Chicagoland area that say something like, we've got an English-speaking service at 9.30, a Spanish-speaking service at 11, or something like that. Praise God! Everyone in that second service speaks Spanish, so that's the service, that's the language they should have it in. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But uh, for the most part, uh, here we are in in an English-speaking community, and so we should have a worship service in English. Application number two, building up the body takes priority over personal experience. Building up the body takes priority over personal experience. At several points in this passage, Paul calls the readers back to the priority of benefiting others. Verse three, for their upbuilding and encouragement. Verse four, the one who speaks in a tongue should build himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5, so that the church may be built up. Verse 6, how will I benefit you? Verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 17, the other person is not built up. Verse 19, in order to instruct others. Verse 26, let all things be done for building up. And verse 31, so that all may learn and be encouraged. Over and over again, he said the most important part is the building up of the church. It's not me time, it's we time. Now someone might, I suppose, argue back and say, well, I'm offended. I'm offended that you're telling me to to leave my language at home. This is part of who I am. This is my culture, my heritage, and, and this is just how I worship the best. I feel like I need to speak my language, and who are you to tell me to leave that at home? Well, Paul is saying it's not about you. It's about building up the church, and that's impossible to do if a language is spoken that people don't understand. Now, that's fine. We can say whatever we we want to ourselves or quietly, or if someone's a a non-dominant language speaker, sure, go ahead, speak to yourself and quietly and and pray. But if you're standing up in front, if you're reading, if you're mic'd and, and you're singing, or if you're preaching or teaching, if you're doing anything to build up the body, then it needs to be in a language that everybody understands. We're commanded to put the congregation before the need to express ourselves. And number three, uh, God has created people as distinctively male or female. This is yet another passage that reminds us that God still makes distinctions between men and women. Uh, God commands his church to make distinctions between men and women. And not only is this important and crucial for establishing word-based gifts and regulating a worship service, but it's important to how we understand ourselves and our families and the world we live in. Once again, men and women are created fully equal in value and personhood and worth 
yet they are also created with unchanging and fundamental differences. In other words, men and women are not interchangeable. There are things that women do that men can't do. There are same things that men do that women can't do. And the world would say, oh no, there isn't. And it, would, it goes to great lengths to try to get rid of all differences. Uh, the world continually sends the message that men and women are interchangeable and that there are no differences. And that being a man or a woman even doesn't matter anymore. But it still matters to God. And it still matters to his faithful church, which means it still matters to us. I think the appropriate way to conclude this passage and really this whole section of worship is by giving thanks. Thank you, God, for making us male and female. Thank you, God, for giving us the ability to communicate in, in all kinds of languages. Thank you, God, for giving us your church and instructions on how to regulate a public worship service so we're not all doing our own thing. We're worshiping the way God wants us to worship him. And thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for calling us to repentance and belief and forgiving our sins. Thank you for securing our salvation. We need to give thanks. No matter what language we speak, young or old, male or female, all come to God in the same way. And that's through faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone. Worship is important. And God has told us how it is to be done. It's not a free-for-all. It's not me time. It's to be done decently in order because of what God has first done for us. Amen. Father, we give you thanks for who you are and for what you have done for us. And we give you thanks for this passage that tells us, instructs us, commands us on how you want to be worshipped. And Father, we always want to be in the center of your will and, and no less when it comes to the public worship of, of your church. So Father, help us to worship you correctly in accordance with scripture so that you're glorified, so that you get all the praise, and so that your church is built up. Amen.